This is Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman, and I want to urge you to make a generous donation to the Wayne Foundation so we can stop the sexual trafficking of children. Do it, or I'll find you. Hey, listeners, Jamie Walton here. This is a friendly reminder that just like all shows on the Smodco Network, the Wayne Foundation podcast is explicit in nature. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Thanks! Hey there, this is Jamie Walton with the Wayne Foundation podcast. Last time we spoke with Kim Grebert, who is the head of the Human Trafficking Department of Florida's Department of of Children and Family Services. She gave us a lot of great information on how uh, social workers um, are having to look at the issue of human trafficking and child trafficking. Uh, As we continue on with this little series that we're doing, this organ, my organization is is trying to put information out there as much as possible about trafficking occurring within the United States, specifically the trafficking of children and what an epidemic it is. Uh, for those of you who know me, I'm a survivor of trafficking. I'm also a, an advocate for children who are currently being victimized. Today, I have a very very special guest. I'm very happy to have this person on the show because I think that this is an area of child trafficking that is widely misunderstood. It's miscategorized um, for several reasons. Um, And that is the male survivors of CSEC and child trafficking. Uh, There's not a lot of male survivors out there who self-identify openly, and there's definitely not a lot of survivors out there who are working as advocates. So... Uh, without further ado, I would like to introduce Mr. John Price. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jamie. And first, let me say it's an honor and a privilege to be speaking with you because, um, as I've told you in some of our private conversations in the past, you are the reason why I speak out today because hearing your story gave me the strength to find my voice to share my my story. Um, as you said, I'm an advocate for male victims. But for me at this point in my life, because I've found the strength to self-identify, get out, share my story. I don't consider myself a survivor. I consider myself to be a thriver because thriving it to me takes you beyond the point of just making it through like a lot of people do and then call themselves survivors. It puts me in a point where, I'm taking my experiences, what I went through, which for me was because of my birth father. Um, And I just, I'm using that to try to help people because as we both know, not a lot of, like you said, not a lot of men will self-identify, but there's also a societal stigma to it. And my goal is to help eradicate that stigma and give men, and I hate using this term, but applies here, a safe space to be able to come out, identify what they went through, say, this is what happened to me. I need help. 
Yes, that, and it, it is, it, it's a very important topic. That's why I wanted to have you on the show um, when we discussed you coming on as a guest. I, I felt like from a trafficking standpoint, people really need to understand this. Um, to give some perspective on this to our audience, I'm looking at the Office of Juvenile Justice's um, estimates on commercial sex trafficking and exploitation of uh, children in the United States. Um, the numbers here are based on a study by Brian 2014 and Polaris Project, which is the largest international uh, counter-trafficking organization in the world. Uh, there are 2012 numbers. It uh, it's, uh, estimates that uh, sex trafficking in the United States victimizes more than 200,000 children per year. And in addition, uh, uh, 244,000, uh, between 244,000 and 360,000 children in the United States are at risk each year for being sexually trafficked and sexually exploited. That being said, if you go further into the study, when it starts breaking down who are these people, it identifies that 95% of sex trafficking victims um, as of 2000 level, uh, 2011 from the Bureau of, Ju uh, Bureau of Justice Statistics, and this is known trafficking cases, so that's we, why we want to make this point, that 95% of sex trafficking victims are female. I know for a fact that's not true. That's not statistically accurate. Now, yes, is it accurate in the sense of, of reported cases? Absolutely. But as far as how many victims actually exist, and um, are needing services and help and needing support, then no, 5% does not adequately um, show the level of male, male youth being affected by this crime as well as female youth. Def definitely it doesn't. It's not even close to um, an equal understanding of the numbers. And sadly, it's because of that societal stigma I spoke about that um, – we don't have more accurate numbers. Like in my case, when it was going on for me as a child, I tried telling some adults, like teachers as an example, um, what was going on. And I was basically told, sit down, shut up, you're a liar. That's terrible. It, it is. And that's why after finding my voice, I realized I need to dedicate my time and I say this as an ancillary point here as a pastor to not just the traditional getting into the pulpit and preaching, but more aiming my ministry work and what I do at speaking out for the underserved victims, which in this case are the male victims. And for me, it, it's, a, it's a life mission. It, it's something that I will do until the day I die. And as I told you privately, I run into all kinds of um, roadblocks from closed minds, if you will, um, where I've been told things like, shut up, faggot, eat a bag of dicks, go back and enjoy having your ass raped again, things of that nature. Now, is this, the, is this kind of stuff being said to you in person, like to your face? It's a combination of in person and then what us geeks identify as shitlords on social media. Yeah. That's, and you know, that's really interesting to me in the sense, like, first of all, I'm, 
I'm sorry that that's happening to you because that's not right. People should be more respectful of that, you know. I mean, come on. Uh, you're putting yourself out there. You're not, you know, you're, you're not asking for donations because you're claiming you were victimized. You're really just trying to make people aware. So it's not a situation where we see, you know, like the, the certain professional victims that are appearing on the internet nowadays that so many people talk about. Um, I don't think you could really be thrown into that category any more than I could be. Um, we're both actively working for our causes. We're not just sitting around on social media. Um, but more to the point is that what I found interesting about this is that, excuse me, <coughs> what I found interesting about this is that the response to me as a female victim is that I'm some kind of hero. Like, that's always been the response. I mean, I've, I've only, I think I've maybe experienced two or three people in, in eight years since um, I started the Wayne Foundation to actually, and these were only online, they weren't even to my face, um, to actually say anything negative to me or, um, you know, nasty towards me as far as me opening up about my own experiences. So when you told me that, you know, it's kind of a toss-up for you as to how people react, I was shocked. I was really, really shocked. Like, I, I mean, maybe not so much from the online world, but definitely from an in-person stance. Like, if somebody said that they were victimized and that this has been a huge lifelong struggle for them and that they're trying to do something to stop it, why would you ever have a closed mind about that? You know, it's, it just it's, it blows me away, especially <laughs> in correlation, you know, to myself that I've never experienced that as a female. So when we start getting into the subject of, well, why is it that we have such low numbers of these cases being reported? This is one of the top reasons is is that there's not always a pleasant response for males that come out unlike female victims who are generally very well taken care of if they self-identify. Absolutely. It's that's definitely from my experience has been the top reason and that's because there's such a misconception about male victims of trafficking where it runs one of two areas. Either people automatically assume that we're oversex perverts and we wanted it, or they just don't give a damn and they decide to go into trolling mode and basically treat us like we're a pile of shit. Yeah. That's, I mean, again, that's a, it's, that's, it's a rough situation and you're so incredibly brave for facing that and not just be like, oh, well, screw this, I'm done. You know, like, you stood up to that and said, hey, no, you know what, you know, I might not be engaging with these people, but I'm going to still keep putting my message out there, and I'm still going to be representing those who um, cannot represent themselves, who are currently being victimized. Um, You know, I find that to be tremendously heroic, because people call me a hero, and I'm just like, no, well, maybe, I don't really feel that way, but thank you for saying as much. You know, I think that 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 title is more appropriate to you, because I'm not facing the backlash that you're facing. Like, I've got the majority of the feedback I've ever gotten is all positive. Like, again, I could, like I said, I could think of maybe two times 
that I had real serious comments thrown my way that I were like, wow, somebody's, wow, somebody doesn't understand what I'm talking about, you know? In the online communities, there's the, there's what's known as the alt-right, which is the extremist right-wing nut job wackos that also carry the racist bent to them. Yeah. Um, To the people who say it to my face, I equate them with being right there with those alt-right and you're and you're and and you identify as conservative right exactly i i'm very so that's interesting that's really interesting to me that that you're you don't identify as liberal and yet they're still attacking you well i'm not a liberal to these alt-right ultra racist ultra bigoted pieces of garbage because um i i don't ascribe to their hate yeah you're 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 not an extremist but you know, because each side has extremism to it, it. Exactly. But more importantly, to bring it back to where we both know this, it needs to be one of my one of my most important quotes that I've ever given somebody, and it's not because I thought it up, it's not because it's anything special. It it just brings it right back to the point of why I do what I do, which is if not me than who if not now then when well and that's a perfect example especially when we're talking about uh the known cases as of 2011 only five percent sex trafficking victims being identified as male um that's uh, we got to stop the stigma somewhere and if you're not going to step up i don't i mean i know of one other male survivor um who works with victims and that's it and i know a ton of female survivor advocates, not just surviving. I know a ton of female survivors period who have been successfully been able to get out of, uh, their, their trafficking situations and move on to have, um, more healthier lives. Um, but the people who are, as you call, uh, and I have too, um, call them, we call them thrivers, the people that are deciding to work, uh, it, within the system to try to not just you know come out and say hey this happened to me but try to work within the system to make sure that it stops and make sure that things get changed so like you coming on this podcast how this is important and this is what a, a point that I'd like to make to our, our audience um, there are very limited services available for C, uh, CSEC youth, that's commercial sexual exploitation of children, which falls, uh, human trafficking falls into that umbrella. That's, um, what it boils down to for me is, um, I may, I may not be the best public speaker, but I'd much rather have my voice out there to change the system, to for the better, uh, to get help for those who are being trafficked, obviously both boys and girls, but right. more specifically, get the, the the specialized kind of help that boys are going to need. Yeah, and that's what's important about it. Like I said, like I was, um, the point I was starting to make was that, you know, the, the services are limited in general, right? But then when we start boiling down what services are available, all of almost all of the services are completely geared towards female victims. So, and one of the problems that we run into when even even if male victims do appear, um, which and I'm, I'm guessing 
in cities like San Francisco and Seattle that they have very, very, because they have very high numbers of homeless youth, that they have high numbers of male victims. So um, the services that need to be provided to those victims are extremely different than the services that are provided to females. Like, I mean, yes, we do, we do all experience the same level of traumatization, but as you're pointing out, just in speaking out about the issue, uh, what you experience and what I experience as now adult thrivers working within the counter-trafficking fields, um, you're getting pushback and I'm not. So See, that in and of itself right there shows that there is a huge difference in the way that male and female victims are going to be responded to and are having to react to this situation. See, that that's where even some within the anti-trafficking community um, don't have as clear of an idea because we're – from where I'm coming from as a male survivor, I see the need for those programs that are already in place. Um, but I also, because there's so much crossover and how to handle what you went through versus what I went through. But then there's also the specialized need of taking that one step further and um, retooling those programs that are already in place to add a male specific portion to those programs which is why I'm even working at this point to reach out to some um, some of my state legislatures, legislators here in Missouri to work with them to make sure that, um, like in the Kansas City, Missouri area, as an example, we are one of the top 10 metropolitan areas in the nation for trafficking of youth and children because of the fact that we're like at a middle road, if you will, where you can shoot north and head up towards Canada. You can shoot east and head out to the eastern seaboard. West, we're, we're like prime point of right in the middle for for those that are wanting to traffic, whether it be youth or adults at this point. And there, there's not a lot in place um, outside of the general programs that are more female-oriented available for male for victims of trafficking as a whole so by working with hopefully making the connections i need over the next several months i can work more closely with some of the um at least at the state level to start changing some of those programs and to ensure for lack of a better way of putting it equal access for male victims as well as females Right, and it's not, you know, and the, the, on top of it, it's not just working with the, the male <coughs> victims and survivors. Um, it's also helping their families to cope and understand, providing them with support services, um, things of that nature. Because so, I'll openly admit, as a female survivor, I have never claimed to understand what it's like for a male survivor. I mean, I, I can understand in a sense like a, a, as, a, as traumatization of us from a psychological point of view, some of the main aspects that we do share male and female, but then there's a whole bunch of aspects that are different for males and females and what we experience and how we react to it. And it's important to note that from a psychological and mental health perspective, 
it, it, I mean, it's great if there's programs out there that can provide any basic psychological assistance, but there really needs to be specialized services. If we're going to be pushing for specialized care psychologically for females, then the males have to be acknowledged just as much. And I have to tell you from working in, in this, in this industry for as long as I have now, I really see males being underrepresented as far as who's out there fighting for their cause, who's out there making the claim, hey, there are male victims, we just need to find them, we need to make sure that they, as you said, you know, we don't like, you know, that this term safe space is a little overused, but in reality, this is a, a real thing, you know, that you need to, as a, as a male survivor, you need to know that you can trust the person that you're talking to, and that they know that they're experienced, and that they know how to treat you properly, you know, exactly. so, um, and, and again, like I said, and also provide support to your spouse, your your children, if you were to choose to chill, tell your children, you know, your uh, any sorts of things, you know, not just coming out and being an advocate, because that's the next step, but just identifying personally and being open and saying, hey, this is something that happened to me in childhood. Now, um, I would like to ask the question, and Lisa, you don't have to get detailed at all, but would you be willing to describe to the audience uh, anything at all about what it was you experienced so that way they can understand, number one, how prevalent this is, and number two, just how close to home this can be? A- absolutely. Like I said earlier, my birth father was my trafficker. Right. Um, and that's and, very common. I have to say from working with victims that that's, um, at least as far as the female side is concerned, that, that is a common thing. It, it's very common um, trafficking wide, but just as importantly to understand, trafficking doesn't always include, like you said before, just the traditional pimping out a child, if you will. Yeah, no, it, inclu- um, it, it includes a lot of things. It includes, like, and yes, my birth father did have me sleeping with other people. Like, I actually had a doctor procure my services at one point. Yeah. Yeah, I had a couple um, of professors. It's it's always interesting to, to think back and remember who these people were. But there was even a, several points where, like, I spoke with a member of the media, which um, I'm going to go ahead, if if you'll give me permission, Jamie, and say her name and her media outlet so that she gets the credit she deserves. Absolutely. For, Go for it. This is I'm not, we don't have ads or sponsors on this. This is more of a public service announcement. So feel free to plug whoever you want. Her name is Laura Moritz and she's with KNBC at channel nine out of Kansas city. Okay. Um, I, when, she, when I did an interview with her, which she was, like I said, phenomenal she she she's one of very few people in the media i actually trust yeah Uh, you got to be careful who you trust in the media as a survivor because they're not trauma-informed in the way that we are and the way psychologists are so um they can ask inappropriate questions and they that can that can be affected that can affect the person that's doing that's being interviewed thankfully with laura she took the time to become informed that's great. Before it's great to she, know that somebody's doing their research. But there was a point where I was, um, and I'm just using the most, the least offensive terms here because if somebody hears this, I don't want them to hear terms that are going to have them breaking down. 
Yeah, no, uh, and there's a warning at the beginning of this. I didn't say it openly, but we actually have a bumper warning at the beginning of this that this podcast is super explicit in nature and that listener discretion should be advised. So, yeah, uh, for those of you that might be triggered by this, you know, maybe this is the time to stop listening. Um, I really hope that they don't, which is why I try – when I talk, I try to use the – I have a feeling that the people listening to this podcast know what this is about, so – Right, but you never know, and so I try to use the least offensive terms. Um, when I was hired out to do one of the things that I did, it was being filmed performing sex acts with a female child, um, where I was basically told, if you don't do this, you'll be hung out that window by your neck. Yeah, so you're threatened. Do you mind me asking how old you were at the time? That when I was seven. Yeah. So, okay. So, and this is what, this is, this falls under what, you know, the commercial sexual exploitation of children. Um, this is, uh, a, a form of child pornography. Um, if there was any commercial gain in this, um, you know, like you said, it, it, it's not, uh, what photos and videos don't fall into human trafficking, but what human trafficking falls into is sexual exploitation and that's where all of this all kind of connects because some people have a hard time understanding that. So that's why I've tried to use the, I, why I try to use CSEC, the commercial sexual exploitation of children. I try to use that a, a lot and say that and repeat it. So people get used to hearing that phrase because like I said, it, it's really all encompassing. It's all commercial sexual, commercial sexual exploitation. So human trafficking where there's, um, you know, pimps and Johns, uh, child pornography where a child is being repeatedly both physically exploited but then re-exploited by their images being shared online and viewed online um, by those who would uh, want to see that kind of material. Um, it also falls under, we don't see this as often in the United States, but it also falls under arranged marriage um, for children, um, forced marriages, things like that. So uh, the, the CSEC umbrella really encompasses a lot of different things. But what the reason why it's all grouped together is because the traumatization that the child receive, feels and receives is all exactly the same. Exactly. And that's why, um, as you know, Jamie, I've used both the phrase CSEC, commercial sexploit, sexual exploitation, as well as DMST, domestic yes. minor sex trafficking, because I kind of fall under the umbrella of child porn plus also being trafficked um, because that's the route that my birth father took. And by using those interchangeably as I do, it helps people understand that CSEC falls into more detailed areas than just what they may have uh a basic understanding of. Yeah, it's a, to give an example for our audience, CSEC is like using the word drug trafficking. You know, that's not being specific about the type of drug that you're referring to and how that drug affects people, its street value or anything like that. Um, it's a it's a it's a very uh, wide ranging non specific term, but it describes a general activity. That's what CSEC, commercial sexual exploitation of children, is when you start getting into the acronym DMST, domestic minor sexual trafficking, that is a form of CSEC. And the reason why it has its own designation is because there are 
again, getting into more subcategories, is there are victims that are natural-born citizens, which is what's why it's called domestic minor sexual trafficking, and then there's uh, foreign victims that are brought into the United States. So um, it's important that we accurately start defining things um, and having the public aware of what these things are. I, I was over the moon. I think you're aware. I was over the moon when Batman versus Superman came out and I went and saw it. And our friend Ben Affleck, who fights trafficking in the Congo, um, he, he is Batman fought human traffickers. Uh, and I mean, it's, it's a very small portion of it, but they used the term human trafficking like three times in very quick succession um, said by, you know, Ben Affleck and some of the other main characters. So I thought it was really, really great because we want the public to become normalized but to hearing human trafficking. You know, we want them to understand this is a crime, just like we openly acknowledge, um, you know, the drug trade is an active crime that happens in the United States. We're not sticking our heads in the sand and saying, oh, no, that doesn't happen. But for some reason... I mean, it's gotten a little bit better over the last few years. I would say when I first started this, it, it was way more difficult to get people to understand that human trafficking yeah. happens here at all. They were thinking of, like, the movie Taken. And they're like, you mean like that? And I'm like, no, it's nothing like that. Nothing. <laughs> that is a fictional movie. Liam Neeson is awesome in it, but that is not how it happens. You know, kidnapping is not the most viable way to um, uh, exploit a child. Um, so... Yeah, no. Just forget yeah. that movie. Just think of think. What? Let me let me inform you. Forget that movie and just get it into your head that that was fictional. Kind of like when you see uh, cop movies. Cop movies obviously don't always fall along the lines of how actual law enforcement actually works. No. So. Let, me, let me point out something else here for the listeners. Uh huh. Um, since you brought up the drug trade, most people have a misconception when it comes to what we are dealing with down along the border with the Mexican cartels, that if we wipe out their drug trade, that wipes out the cartels. By far, that is not the case um, because they see that their profits are being eaten into for various reasons when it comes to drugs. And they're by far making much more money um, trafficking in the sex trafficking industry than they are by drugs anymore. So that's one of the reasons why I stay openly to anybody I talk to. Yes, I'm advocating for the victims now, but I'm also advocating for the termination of this most disgusting disease that our nation is being hit with. Right. And yeah, going into the um, what you're discussing here, this is something that I speak about as well in my presentations, especially with law enforcement, um, is that the what we have going on here um, on the border First of all, we have to look at the idea that human trafficking is a very from a because human trafficking is a is a business model for criminals. We're not talking you and I are not talking about sexual predators. We're not talking about, you know, people who get off on abusing other people. We're talking I mean as far as the people that conduct these kinds of crimes, not the people not the um johns or the users or the people who consume child porn but the people who are actually causing the victimization itself this is highly profitable for them and that's why they do it and it's exactly. also from a business standpoint it's also very low risk for them because law enforcement by and large are are looking for guns and drugs they're not looking 
for people, at least, at least, uh, I mean, they're being trained at more law enforcement is, is, is getting training more and more every day on how human trafficking occurs and what, uh, what the tactics are and things like that. But the reality is, is that, you know, just seeing a person does not mean that a, a first responder of any type, law enforcement, hospital, whatever, are going to be adequate, a, adequately able to identify that person, even if they've been trained. You know, so because that's the nature of this crime that people call it, uh, uh, you know, hidden. These these kids are hidden in plain sight. That's the truth of it. Is they are hidden in plain sight. So, very, very much so, they are hidden in plain sight, which is why part of the work that I'm doing now is, and I hadn't intended to mention this, but since we've kind of rolled into this direction, I'll go ahead and say it. One of the things that I'm doing is I'm making myself available and trying to build partnerships with some of the local law enforcement agencies. Like I live on the Missouri side of the Kansas city border, Missouri, since most people know that there's Kansas city, Missouri, then there's Kansas city, Kansas. Um, but I'm making myself available to the point where I'm trying to build partnerships. And I've reached out directly to the chief of police for the Kansas city, Kansas police department about my willingness to come in and help educate the officers about not only what to look for, but how to handle those situations um, and giving them a survivor's point of view uh, so that they're more informed on what they're going to be dealing with as they come across those situations. Yeah. That's what uh, we in the, uh, in this industry refer to as trauma informed care for our audience. Uh, John and I know that term very well, but um that's that is something that we both teach for law enforcement, and that you know it's that as as I've said publicly before, um, the top three black market items in in the world are guns, you know, of arms, um, drugs, and people. And people are number two in value right now. They've outranked arms and guns as far as value. And the reason for this is it's a simple supply and demand issue that you can take a, a gun and a drug and you sell it one time and then you have to get more inventory, you know, but you have a person, you can sell that person over and over and over and over again. And it's all, it, it's continued profit, you know? So it, as far as what criminal entities are, are doing to make money, they have, they have, especially with the internet um, and social media exploding in the way that it has, they are utilizing these things to exploit children and exploit even adults in, into these lifestyles and into these criminal enterprises. And um, the, it's widely unseen. It's, it's, um, I was just in a, a, a training recently that was for um, gang tactics and trafficking. Um, it was revealed that one gang that was busted that had had a two-year-long operation, they had contacted over 800 children on Facebook in two years. Now, you know, let, let that's me, terrifying. That's it, terrifying. It is. And let me just state for the record for our listeners that you and I both have um, contacts within the law enforcement community that we don't regularly advertise their names, their positions because no. of the work that they do. No, no, um, of course not. I And I say that disclaimer so people will understand that I can't obviously advertise who it is, but I have somebody that I'm working with on some projects in the law enforcement community where they flat out told me when it comes to 
those three items here in the Midwest. Peddling human flesh, whether it be children or adults, is actually the number one um, most money-making venture for criminals because of, like you said, it boils down to drugs, arms. You sell them once, you have to get more inventory in. But with humans, you can victimize them again and again and again and again. And as a criminal, they've only made that initial investment into whatever it took to get that human being, adult or child, involved in. Um, right, well, right. Providing them with the minimal amount of uh, uh, um, shelter or food or whatever, or transportation that, to get them uh, to where they are victimizing them, things of that nature. Like we're talking really bare minimum costs, you know, whereas versus buying um, a large amount of drugs or a large amount of guns would cost in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. You're talking about one, one person, uh, one victim can net hundreds of thousands of dollars for their trafficker in one year, just one person alone. And that's based off of um, a uh, the largest bust that we had here in Florida that FDLE conducted. The, that statistics based off that, that these people are actually making in the hundreds of thousands of dollars per victim in some cases. So um, when you talk about profit margins like that, that's extremely tempting. And then on top of it, when you talk about law enforcement having a very difficult time identifying who these victims are without having like a direct source, like, you know, like somebody who's snitching or, you know, like it's just stumbling across them themselves very rarely happens. It, it does. And it happens even less with male victims. Absolutely. As I would on. think so. I would think so. Because as the male victims become more cognizant of, the abuse that they're put through, they also become more cognizant of the threats that they're facing and then add on to the fact that, like, I deal with being told things like eat a bag of dicks um, when I'm speaking out on what I went through. Uh, fewer male victims are going to identify because they're afraid to deal with the backlash that they'll receive. Well, and that's where people like you... Uh, just in the same way that I do with female victims. That's why people like you are so important because you're the one that's putting yourself out there and saying, Hey, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to speak for you. You know, you maybe you not, you might not be ready to be an advocate, but I'm at least going to speak for you and give you a voice. So that way you don't know who's going to listen to this podcast for all, you know, when this podcast airs, you could have five guys email you and say, Hey, uh, I've never told anybody this before in my life, but I really need to talk to somebody. I feel like I can finally have someone who will understand me. Because I'll tell you, that happened to me when I first did Kevin's podcast, like in 2011. Um, I got a huge response from people that not just sex trafficking victims, but sex abuse victims. And that was a very common theme was that, you know, I heard your story and it made me feel comfortable enough that I could actually talk to somebody about this. Is it okay if I talk to you? And I got, and I got some really long emails where they just, you know, they just kind of had to get everything out because they had never said something to somebody before about it. And I, I very, you know, lovingly read all of these things and understood what they were going through and told, you know, anything I can do to help you, please let me know, you know. 
you know, any support that you need. So, and I, I'm sure that you feel the same way that in a, in at least in a private sense, um, you know, anybody who wants to reach out to you as a male survivor, I'm sure you'd be happy to speak with them. I definitely would. And honestly, the best way to do that is, um, just reach out to me with the most basic message on Twitter, which my handle is at jprice02, and just say, hey, can, how can I contact you? I'd like to talk. Yeah, yeah, you know, and uh, that's great. And I, I, think that that's, I think that's really important to get out there, you know, cause, like I said, in case there is a male listener out there that is, like, even if even it's not, like I said, even if it's not trafficking, even if it's just sexual abuse, and you've never talked to anybody about it, you've never opened up to anybody about it, the first step before, you know, going into therapy is generally opening up to somebody that you feel like you can trust. And with, because unfortunately with therapists, you got to kind of feel it out to if it's a good fit or not. So that can, that, so that's even more of a bigger problem with males because they're not going to be sure if they can trust a particular therapist. So they're going to have to dance around the issue a little bit for a few sessions before they even can figure out whether they can establish trust with this person or not. And, so and that's, it, it's, that's got to be so frustrating. It, it is. And that's why I also tell people, that if anybody needs to talk about any of the issues that we discuss in the most general sense, um, understand, and because of the stigma that is connected to the Catholic Church, normally I don't like making the comparison, but it fits. Um, think of our conversations, our private conversations, as you sitting in a confessional um, where the only time that I will say anything to anybody about our conversation is if I have a deep fear that you might be in a position where you're going to hurt yourself or somebody else. Otherwise it stays between us. Right. Yeah. No. And that's what, and that's the rule of thumb that psychology, well, that's the law that psychologists have to roll by, but that's basically the thing that I roll with, you know, as long as you're not planning on harming yourself or harming anybody else, uh, you can pretty much tell me anything and it's, and it's all confidential, you know, um, uh, it, it's not, it, I, you have to have people, like I said, trust is a big thing. So you have to have people know that they can trust you if they're going to open up. And um, I think with you, you're that perfect stepping stone because, you know, obviously we're what we're basically hearing from this conversation is that males, even if they do self-identify to themselves personally, um, are having a hard time coming out even to just their friends and families. We're not talking about being advocates. We're talking about just being honest with their loved ones about, hey, this is a part of my life and I really do need to deal with it. It doesn't define me, but it is a part of me and it has to be addressed for me to be a healthy, um, happy human being. Exactly. And that's why, um, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, I define my, one of the ways I define myself when I'm talking with people is I'm a stubborn son of a bitch Mm -hmm. because I'm not going to sit by and let another day go by where I don't share um, my story. I don't share my experiences because if I do that, then I'm failing the people that need the help the most. And while obviously, you know, I'm compassionate and I care about both sides of the gender coin when it comes to sex trafficking, the ones that need the most help right now are the men. 
I'll say, voice. yeah, I'll agree with you in that sense that um, just from the standpoint alone, that there are so few services available for boys that when, like for me personally and my work with the Wayne Foundation, um, our organization doesn't take any boys. Now we, um, we will for an interim moment, like if they were to show up at our offices, I wouldn't like turn them away. But we have a partner organization um, that's about an hour away, more to life, that's operated by Dr. Brooke Bellow. And um, she's the head of the organization. They do have a male survivor on staff and they do have um, a counselor on staff that is experienced with male survivors. So that's who now so far in during our our operation, we have yet to come across a male survivor because we're not openly advertising that we help male survivors. So I haven't had one come up, but if it were to happen, I at least have a plan in place so that we do have a referral system where we can, you know, make sure to transport the child over or, you know, they're off, you know, more to life can come down and get, come get the kid. Um, And they can, and they can help them there with more because again, as we've discussed, you know, the psychological care and, and the counseling that's needed for these, for males, it, it does, it needs to be done by someone who's experienced and it needs to be done by somebody that the um, child's going to be able to respond to. So the fact that they have a male survivor on staff has always made me real um, excited because I, I can't think of any other organizations, at least locally, that we're partnered with. Um, that they're all female based. So um, the fact that this organization does do that, I think that's great. And I can't wait until you get to that point in your area of the world to, to be continuing those kinds of services. Cause it just shows if we've got one organization, okay, here, we got you, you starting your own work. So that just shows they're starting to become a pattern, just like I, what I've watched with trafficking in general, on that, let me just also state that, mm-hmm. yes, I am working towards um, a much um, broader program than what the Wayne Foundation has in place, um, because, as you know, I've been working for years on getting everything together so that I can start an organization aimed at men and boys, but where I'm going to go a little bit broader from, at least from my basis of understanding here is once the home is open, the home's going to be, hopefully if I can find the right place, like on a farm where we can teach the boys a trade as well. Right. You, well, we did. Yeah. We, um, we don't do job training, but we do do, um, we are partnered with people that provide job training and we, um, do do with, uh, job placement assistance. So um, we do do, we do go that far. Um, but that generally doesn't apply with it. We, mo- we mostly work with youth. Um, our program does extend um, into young adulthood up to around 25. Um, and, and that's kind of where um, in a lot of ways I'm modeling what I want to do after what you do. Uh-huh. Well, that's but also, thanks, for, thanks for the compliment. It's it's phenomenal work that you do with the Wayne Foundation, and I'll be. I always tell people until I'm ready to open the doors to a new organization, people need to throw their support behind the Wayne Foundation and its partners because they're the ones that need the most help right now. 
I really appreciate that because, I mean, there's a lot of organizations out there. Um, the majority of organizations, as I'm sure you're well aware, do not provide direct services to victims. They pretty much just spread awareness, um, which is great because, as we always say, you know, the awareness is our biggest weapon. But that being said, you know, it, people, if you're a donor and you you need to be aware that this money is going to X, Y, and Z, if it's going to, you know, make uh, uh, Twitter ads and things like that, you know, that's great. But if you and give some money, give money to them, but, you know, you really need to think about the fact that there is so little services out there for this population of children that what few charities that do exist that provide direct services, they really need to be the ones getting attention. And I don't say this selfishly. I mean this for everybody. I mean this for your organization once you get that rolling. I mean this for More to Life. I mean this for all of our partner organizations that work directly with these kids, you know, especially ones that are survivor-led because who knows better that um how what these kids are experiencing than a survivor themselves exactly and that's why that's one of the reasons why i was so drawn to the wayne foundation first and why i'm so behind you jamie and behind the wayne foundation itself because you know what i've been through at least from the actual victimization sense and i know based off of the fact that you know what I've been through, you, your heart is in it for all the right reasons and you're in it to help others who are coming out of that rather than make a dime. Like, and I won't even say their names at this point. Some of the other organizations that I've run across that purport to want to help people leave trafficking. Yeah. Well, it's not bad mouth anybody, but yeah, that's the truth of it that people, um, and I know, I know some people that do, but people need to, when you're going to give to an organization, there's plenty of resources out there. Um, we're, uh, uh, we're on guidestar.org. I mean, we put all of our financials on our website period and they're all audited by a, um, an auditor who has been working for 50 years auditing charities specifically. Um, so we have that kind of level of transparency, but it's also, um, what GuardStar does further is it, it allows people to review the charity. It allows people to see the mission, the, the programs that are in place, things like that. And we submit all of that information as an organization because the way I've always looked at the public is the public is, even though it, that's not the way it's corporately structured, the public is almost like stockholders in, in the Wayne Foundation. You know, we're running off of your money. So I have an obligation to show as much, I mean, due to the nature of this particular crime and this type of work, I can't show you the kids I'm working with. I can't discuss the law enforcement stuff side of things other than trainings and stuff like that. Um, the only thing I can really lean on is my own, my own background. I can lean on doing this podcast and doing interviews with people like Kim Graber from the state of Florida, people like you who are, who is another survivor. Um, I have some people planned in on the, on the future, you know, psychologist that specifically works with trafficking. Hopefully I'll be able to get her on here. We're going to see because of the confidentiality issue, that's, it's a constant thing. We've got to make sure to um, 
make sure to cover all our bases. So I'm kind of talking to her about that. So, but, but back to my point is that, you know, we have to be able to say something about our work. So the best way that we can go about it is being as, as clear as possible about what we're doing, maybe not showing faces or saying names, but saying, hey, this is what we're doing. This is what we stand for. We do actually actively work with children and, and adults. You know, this isn't just an organization that exists to spread awareness. This isn't an organization that, um, you know, misuses its money in any way. Um, so I think that for me, that's always been important, but I've always seen like across the board, it feels like for survivor led initiative programs, they, they all feel the same way that they don't want this to be about them. They don't want that. They want it to be about the work that they're doing and uh, the understanding that yes, that's what your donations are going to is it's going to make sure that our programs operate and are fully funded. Uh, you know, it, it, it's an it's amazing to me how, just how many entities are willing to ask me for my help and assistance with the, with this uh, with these kids and, that have been victimized, but nobody ever even offers me gas money. You know, like, it's just like, well, you know, this is what you do for a living. And I take that in, in stride. Um, but again, it comes down to individual donors being being generous. So, yeah, when you're supporting organizations, look into them. It doesn't matter what subject matter. It doesn't even matter if it's not even human trafficking, no matter what you do. Co um, Coney 2012, perfect example of an organization that had something go viral. It should have been wonderful for them. But the very first thing I did before I was about, because I'm, I'm not about to tweet out something about a charity that I don't know anything about just because everybody else on social media is. I'm not a lemming. So uh, I, lo I, I looked them up and I looked at their I looked at their 990s, which is basically uh, the equivalent of a charity tax return. And I saw some disturbing things. I was just like, wait, you guys are making a lot of money and you're not spending it in the places that I would expect you to be spending it in. A uh, little bit of places I found a little questionable, uh, especially on like things like travel and stuff like that, talking about in the hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, for just a handful of people to be traveling around. Um, it seemed a little high because there's no breakdown. It's just one main number for the year. So um, whereas like with the Wayne Foundation, we go a little bit more specific in our in our financials to break things down a little bit more. Um, and. Also, um, for me, since I'm not there yet where I don't have an organization that is up and running, that's why when people say, how can I help? Can I give you money to help you get to speaking engagements? I say, right now, the best thing you can do to help is not help me, but help the Wayne Foundation. Because um, no, stepping away from the administrative aspect, knowing the heart of what you guys do and what your partners do and knowing you do it for all the right reasons. That's why I want people supporting you and the work that you do until I'm ready to say, yes, I can accept help. And here's how you do it. Right. And you know what, once you're to that point, cause look, I'm going to be, I'll be the first to tell our listeners as someone who has a, uh, a background in doing accounting kind of work um, that, uh, and I was the one that filed our uh, all of our paperwork to become a, a charity, a corporate charity. Um, it takes a long time 
it, it took us well over a year and I know what I'm doing. Um, so as far as, you know, like the tax code and stuff like that. So I, I know how to fill out these applications. The majority of, of charity startups, um, that application, which is extreme for the IRS, which is extremely long and very specific, um, the majority of charities actually either hire an attorney or a CPA to file that information. So I got, I got lucky in the sense that I could file my own and I didn't have to pay for it. But I got to tell you, I filled out that application. I, I think I printed it like four different times because it's so long. I want to say it's like 40 pages. Um, I printed it out like four times and I was writing it and then editing it and then go back and rewriting it because I knew that, you know, this, this is important. And if you say one off thing, they're going to decline it. And it takes about a year to get even reviewed. Like the review process, like there's such a waiting list for it because the IRS has cut so much of the charitable division down. There's such a waiting list to even get your charity reviewed for stat for 501c3 status. So in the meantime, I appreciate you encouraging people to donate to the Wayne Foundation because again, that's that's we we work with a lot of victims. We work with law enforcement. We're making a very big impact, and um, the the only reason that happens is because of all of you at our, in our audience, and and the, because of people like John, you know, putting our name out there. So, but in the future, once John's is finally complete and up and running, uh, the Wayne Foundation will be plugging the heck out of him right back. And I appreciate that um, because I think more organizations like the Wayne Foundation and what I want to do need to be partnering together to not only do the spreading of awareness, but also to um, make other people in areas outside of um, where they live know that there are services available to them should they need those services. Like at this point, everybody who listens knows the Wayne Foundation is located in Florida. Right. And there and there's a huge need for the work that you guys do down there. But not a lot of people know about say the services in Kansas City as an example. And right. yeah, and it's different some, everywhere. So yeah. And there are some available here. I'm not gonna plug any because I don't know enough about them at this point yeah. to be able to be comfortable plugging one over another. Well, it just shows how responsible you are, so that's fine. Um, but more people need to know about the services one way or another across the U.S. Because as horrible as um, human trafficking is as a whole outside of the U.S., one thing that I always say is I love my country, I support my country, but the notion that we are a free nation is a false one because until everybody in our country is free, we can't call ourselves free. Yeah. And there's a, there is a ton of people, literally hundreds of thousands of people every year. A lot of them kids, um, a whole lot of them kids are being exploited, which it, it, there's a reason why it's called modern day slavery. When people talk about human trafficking in general, um, talking about worldwide, there are more slaves in this world than have ever existed in human history. And I think that's very, very poignant to understand. I mean, now that that's including both forms of trafficking, sex and labor trafficking. Um, 
but and I've seen the numbers. It depends on what source you're looking at. But the you know the minimum number that I've seen is uh, approximately 20 million people currently that are engaged in being victimized by human trafficking. That's a lot of uh, 20 million people. That's I mean that's mind-boggling. That's an entire country. You know, um, it's it's ridiculous, is what it is. Yeah, exactly. It, it is ridiculous. Um, uh, now, obviously, we understand, especially from a labor trafficking international standpoint, that there's a lot of uh, big entities in this world that will want to perpetuate, you know, slave labor and things like that. Um, perfect example. Hey, anybody out there like shrimp? Uh, most likely the shrimp that you are eating did not come from the United States. Um, most likely it came from somewhere in Asia and was farmed by somebody that's being trafficked. Now, the, but, the, the shrimping industry is, is ripe with it. Now, not the ones that are here in the United States, not so much. But the reality is that when you are buying prepackaged frozen shrimp, most of it is not being sourced from the United States. It's, it's and, sourcing from farms that use labor trafficking as, as a form of um, operating their business. And that's why I usually tell people when they're going to buy seafood, make sure that local. it is make sure that it is local make sure that it is from inside the u.s because with our labor laws being like they are we can pretty much guarantee that 98 percent of the food that is grown here in the u.s whether it be um typical fruits and vegetables or even farm when i say grown, i'm referring like to farm raised catfish farm raised shrimp things of that nature um we can pretty much guarantee that there is not going to be somebody that is being trafficked because of how tightly our government pays, is having to pay attention to what goes on in those businesses. Well, um, the one place that we are having, and I only know this because I live in Florida, the one place that we are having a very serious problem is in the agricultural industry. Um, as far as uh, these um, seasonal jobs where, um, especially using migrant workers, um, there's a lot of human. There's a lot of labor trafficking happening with that, but um, and th- and that's being addressed within the United States much more um, vigorously than in other places in the world. Um, but I would say, as far as you know, what's cons- what's uh, called by some people as your slavery footprint, as you as a person are doing. It, let's just be honest. Um, chocolate. Uh, electronics any piece of electronic in your home has been tainted by human trafficking in some way whether it's the microprocessor that that's inside of it whether it's what who put it together this these supply chains are not secure they're not transparent now i'm not saying companies directly purposefully hire traffickers but what they do is that they subcontract and then as you get down the supply chain that's when you see, you know, when there's like three or four different levels between the actual laborers and the company itself getting getting their items. Um, unless they're actively staying on top of those supply chains, it can happen. Another, a very, very predominant place that this happens is in coffee, the growing of coffee beans. We have children that are being kidnapped and taken away from where the, the cities and villages that they live in and being transported 100 miles away and being told that they have to pick coffee beans, you know, um, for free. <laughs> like, they, that's, that's, that's their new life, you know, and they're, you know, 8, 10 years old. 
So, uh, and that's one of the reasons why um, when Just Coffee Cooperative uh, approached me, um, because uh, Kevin was doing his own uh, his own coffee at the time, him and Mosier had created the Smoffy brand with Just Coffee Just Coffee Cooperative. And they approached me shortly thereafter asking if the Wayne Foundation itself <laughs> would like uh, its own form of coffee. You okay? That's actually my poor okay. wife. Um, okay. She's I just been to... sick. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I'm sorry to hear that. But um, yeah, the, the reason why this is important is because, you know, it, just coffee cooperative in order to show that their farmers are being paid adequate wages for the items that that they're receiving as far as their product is on the side of each bag. The, the cost of that bag of coffee is broken down all the way down to the penny of who gets how much. And, and that it, the, the purpose of that is, and why it's a cooperative is because <laughs> they are working with farmers that the aim is to make sure that they're given adequate wages for their crops and their yield. So basically what I'm able to say about our coffee is like, look, you buy a bag of just coffee cooperative, um, either the Wayne Foundation brand or the Smodco brand, um, which I believe is called Smoffy. Um, exactly. And the Wayne Foundation is just called the Wayne Foundation Coffee. Um, if you if you go if you go on their cooperative to buy that coffee, you're actually fighting human trafficking on two separate fronts because we're getting a cut of of the sale of that of that bag of, for every bag of coffee sold, we get a percentage, and then on top of it, you can ensure when you're drinking your cup of coffee in the morning. I di- I I didn't enslave a child by drinking by having in my first world. Uh, house, I'm not enslaving a child by drinking this cup of coffee. So you're fighting human trafficking on two separate fronts just by the simple fact of choosing this company to buy your coffee from. I think that's amazing. I think that's a great thing. And it's something that uh, more people should be constantly aware of. I mean, like we do live in a first world society. So do I have TVs in my home? Yes. Do I have computers in my home? Yes. Do I have Apple devices in my home? Yes. So you know, obviously, um, we can't run away from uh, the slavery footprint that all of us leave by as being consumers um, until in, until the entire world changes and the, the 20 to 30 million slaves out there uh, are no longer enslaved, um, which is going to be a huge task that I'm, I'm definitely not sure will happen within my lifetime. I just, if anything, if I have a goal, I just, I want to see the sex trafficking specifically of children stop in the United States. That's my, that's my goal. Like, cause you got to have realistic goals. Like I, I really can't stand it when people are like, we're going to end trafficking. I'm like, really, really? Because that's that- a really big job. It's just like you were saying earlier that, you know, in Kansas, in Kansas, you guys have specific services Sorry. in Florida. We have specific services. The reason for that is, is because not one entity can save everybody. We're all limited by specifically by financial resources. We're limited by our staffing resources. Um, we're limited by um, <laughs> laws in place that makes, you know, like you have to meet certain qualifications in order to provide certain types of services. Um, perfect example, the Wayne Foundation's long-term goal has always been to provide shelter care services. That in and of itself, j- just in staffing alone, will cost us a quarter million dollars a year because of the requirements the state has for that type of facility. 
So, um, and that's not saying anything bad on the state. It's just the reality of the situation. Exactly. So, um, we, we need to keep in mind that not every, there, not one organization, I mean, even Polaris Project, which is the largest counter trafficking entity in the entire world, even they don't pretend that they can save everybody, that they need people like us. They need the smaller organizations that are on the ground working directly with victims because they can't be everywhere. They can't. They, they can't walk into every meeting with, you know, the state, whatever state services you have or with law enforcement. They can't be the worldwide representative for counter trafficking. And just like I can't be the Florida representative for counter trafficking because the issue is way too big. I, I just said we don't provide shelter services. There is a slight misconception um, in Florida that we do. Um, and that's just based on a lack of knowledge. Um, when people are trying to call and give me referrals, I can tell you with accuracy that I get around 10 referrals a month for, um, shelter placements specifically for ch- ch- uh, children who've been victimized by trafficking. <laughs> and it breaks my heart because every single one I have to decline and have to explain to whoever's calling, you know, you're misunderstanding the services that we provide. We provide a drop-in center. It's, it's a day, it's a daytime center only. And we do no shelter services whatsoever. We provide everything, but, you know, but with the one thing we can't do is we cannot take custody of this child. And that, I mean, it is, it's heartbreaking to me, but it's also, it just exposes to me just how much of an issue there is that people are frantically calling around for every single kid that they need placement for. The calls are always frantic. It's always, it's never like, well, you know, you know, if, if you can do it, that's fine. It's always just like, well, you can't do it. Do you know who can? You know, um, so I, it just it shows the extent of the problem and it, it, it shows that organizations like ours do need to be working together in the same sense that of like I, how I work with more to life in the sense of working with you. Like I said, when your organization is up and running and can be given money, the Wayne Foundation is is happy to give you some support. So kicking some money your way to help you get off the ground and um you know, uh, as far as giving you vocal support, because the reality is, you know, somebody might hear about human trafficking from me, but then they, they might be a male. So they, it, it, you know, although they'll connect with it in a certain way, they might not still feel like they can reach out to me. Whereas I can actively promote like, well, if, if, and if you're a male victim of trafficking, please, um, speak with my, with my buddy, John, that I know for a fact has, the hugest heart in the world when it comes to this particular kind of crime specifically happening to, to young boys that are, as we've repeatedly said during this podcast, uh, com- totally uh, underrepresented as far as that population is concerned. The services really aren't there. So if I can openly say, hey, if you need help, this is the person to contact, I'm and excited about that. On that front, Jamie, I'm when we're done here, um, recording. I'm going to give you my direct line phone number with the understanding that if you come across someone who seriously needs somebody to talk to, you give them that number and they can call me 24-7-365. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, I'm happy to do that. And uh, again, to any of our listeners, if you do happen to be out there and you feel like uh, you 
need someone to talk to because let's just let let's let's just break down the reality of this like i said we're not talking about advocacy we're not talking about going out and telling the public what's happened to you we're talking as something as simple as being able to approach your wife and say this happened to me without the fear of some kind of judgment you know because there's there's a fear it's not because you know the wife would be a bad person or or would say anything horrible but there is a certain amount of stigma and a fear attached with any survivor, but specifically with male survivors, that they're going to be judged in just how you have been judged by the extre- um, extreme conservative side of things. Um, it, it's it's not something that any anybody who's been traumatized would want to walk into is to be is to be ridiculed for their traumatization. So if we can offer them someone safe to talk to that, and you can help talk to them and say, well, this is how I approached it with my spouse. Um, this is how I approached it, you know, or with my parents or whoever that person might be, you know, that's really the first step for males as far as self as far as self-identification is just having an ability to even express what's happened to them to the people that are the closest around them and get a support system going so that their family can help support them in their journey to get finally get recovery and get I, I don't you know. I don't like the term rescue, but get, but to become healthy and get, and to get the, all of their needs met, which for most likely long period of time, their needs weren't being met. So that's, that's, what's important. That's as much as we need that for females, we need that for males too. And, and I'm so glad that you're stepping up to take on that mantle. And that's part of the reason why I went down the faith in, because there are a lot of great psychologists, psychotherapists, what, whatever you decide you want to see that can handle the mental health end. But there's not a lot of people out there who are experienced in what we've been through that can handle the spiritual end. And there's an extreme spiritual need for males just as there is for females. Yes. Um, and if I can bring my experiences to the table, but also my knowledge as a pastor... Um, and help somebody grow spiritually as well as guide them in the direction of getting the help that they need for their mental and emotional health, then it's a win-win for the individual that I'm helping. But for me, knowing that even if I, until the day I die, even if I only help one person, I've succeeded. Right. And And you'll help more than that, I can guarantee you. I used to say the same thing and now I'm inundated with phone calls and don't get days off anymore. So um, you'll you'll get there, sweetie, and you'll be helping way more than one person. I get, but I'll go ahead and give you the guarantee: there will be one person. If anything, I have a goal just from this podcast that you get contacted by one person, um, a legitimate person, not some horrible troll, but a legitimate person that really does have an issue and that you're able to talk to them because that was the whole point of putting this information on this podcast i said initially when i started it when i had spoken with kevin and said hey i want to do a podcast uh you don't need to be on every episode (laughs) um i really want to do this on my own i want to be talking to the people that work within trafficking because there's so many different facets there's law enforcement there's psychologists as you just said there there's spiritual advisors there's victim advocates such as ourselves um there's so many there's so many different layers and so many different 
people coming together to work just with one victim, you know, in any given case, there's literally uh, numerous people involved in human trafficking cases. It's never just like, you know, one or two people, like generally it's a lot of different entities all working in conjunction with each other. So it's, I, I, I felt from the beginning that it was very important in the goal of this podcast to, um, provide a, as much understanding. I mean, we have awareness, right? Wayne Foundation already has achieved a lot of awareness. I want to get more into the specific detail of how this works. How it, how how does the recovery of victims work? How does the expungement of their records, if they have um, if they have sex work charges that are actually trafficking? Um, getting those expungements done. I, I have a friend, of, a friend of mine who's an attorney, uh, Mike Hoffman, who I've been wanting to interview for a long time, because he does this kind of work pro bono, and he and I have worked on um, cases before together for expungement out of New Jersey. So I think that all of that stuff's important. So just as much as those people are important, when you and I started discussing the idea of, of you becoming a public speaker for the first time a few months ago. Um, that's why I immediately said, well, if that's the route you're going to take, please come do my podcast because I want to make sure that your voice is heard because this population is not adequately represented and there's way too much misinformation going on. Um, you need to help clarify that. Like, and, and if, if, if you, if you're not going to do it, like you said, who else is going to do it? Exactly. And one thing that I really want people to know and understand is just as much as you and I are using our own strength to speak out about what we go through, there are still moments where we have breakdowns, moments of weakness, things of that nature. And for me, one of my biggest supporters and one of my best and dearest friends is my wife, Sarah, because even at my lowest point, she's there to help support me to help me refocus. And she, she's essentially a part of my, who I consider to be the most important people to me, which is my self care team. Right. Right. And you know what? Every, every, every survivor of trafficking, um, and well, any survivor of trauma period really, but we'll go ahead and leave it with trafficking since that's what this podcast is about, does need a support system. Even if it's just one, one person, I mean, it's helpful if it's a little bit bigger than that, um, because that way it doesn't put too much pressure on that one person. Cause that can happen. You know, you can have caretaker burnout. Um, but having at least one person to talk to is the first stepping stone. And usually that's your spouse. For me, that was the first person that knew about my trafficking in the entire world was my spouse. Now he wasn't my spouse at the time, but that is the first person who knew. And that's the person when I have my low points, when I'm discouraged by something that's happening in a case or I'm, um, you know, I'm thinking about some of the things that have occurred in my life. Um, and I'm, relating it to some of the young ladies I work with. Um, when I, I, when I have those moments, they don't happen. Luckily they don't happen that often for me. Cause I, I do see 
I'm always promoting my my psychologist. I should probably just get him as a sponsor for the show at this point. Um, I'm always plugging him, and not his name, but always plugging uh, the fact that I see him on a weekly basis. And I I absolutely will swear by the fact that I couldn't do this work without without seeing a clinician. But the reality of the situation is is psychologists themselves see their own psychologists because of the kind of work that we do. Because you can get too close to these cases. These cases can trigger you about personal feelings and things like that. So it's really, really important to keep that aspect under control as us being survivors. Um, but it's, it's important for us to keep um, everything in a, a healthy perspective as far as the work we're doing. And that's, and that's why when I first started looking at becoming um, more publicly vocal, not just on my social media work, but also, like, when I did the interview with Laura Moritz, um, I came to you and I expressed my concerns and my nervousness because I knew you would understand. Yeah, I remember but that conversation. <laughs> separate from that, there are points where Sarah has seen me on my knees near my breaking point because I'm just so broken about something related to um, our work. Right. Um that the biggest thing and the best thing that she can do and she has done is just come put a hand on my shoulder. And that, you know, that's all I ask of my husband either, because honestly, he's not going to be able to identify with what I've experienced. He can have empathy for me, but he can't understand how I experienced what I experienced. So it's more along the lines of just saying, Hey, hon, I'm there for you. I love you. I've got your back in this or reminding me because I need constant reminding of it, of what a strong person I am and everything that I've accomplished because I'm I'm the first person to downplay what I've accomplished uh, a lot of the time, um, and I have to be kind of re- gently reminded of like, do you know how far you've come? And you you're the one who did all this. And I'll say something like, oh well, Kevin did a lot, you know, he helped a lot, you know. But the reality is, is when it comes to the day to day work, the day to day operation of the charity. Um, all of the victim services, it's me. It's me doing, I mean, Kevin's helping us as far as getting our name out there and spreading awareness that this is an issue and he's done a fantastic job of it and I'll eternally be in his debt. I'll eternally be in this debt because it was his idea in the first place. But as far as the boots on the ground, day-to-day operation, that's all me. So I've got a, so sometimes I need a gentle reminder of that fact um, when I'm having a low moment. So you're right, like it, it's not it's not as much as needing somebody to tell you everything's going to be okay. It's more along the lines of saying, hey, I'm here for you, and I understand you're going through something in this moment. Exactly, and to bring it... Because it's not I, necessarily going to be okay. It, exactly. The situation might not right itself, so that might not even be a, an appropriate response. But I want to bring it back around to you for a second, Jamie, okay. because I've said this privately to you, and I'm going to say this publicly to the world. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome, sweetheart. Because, because <laughs> w- without Kevin doing the initial interview with you on first on Smodcast, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it went on Smodcast. Um, well, it was released to the Smodcast su- subscribers. It went on Sminterview, but it was it was released to everybody who had a Smodcast yeah. subscription, which was millions of people. And, which I'm Smodcast, by the way. <laughs> Even I'm not Smodcast. And I didn't even ask for it for free either. I just listened. To, I just listened to. The, I, I just fast forward through the commercials. Well, I, <laughs> I, I went smodcast because 
Kevin introduced me to you through the interviews, through like some interview. And then you became the person that just through your own work, you gave me the strength to find my own voice. Oh, see, we'll see. And look, Kevin gave me my voice. I gave you your voice. So it's like the it's like the Kevin Bacon thing. The how how many degrees away from Kevin Bacon? How many degrees away are you from Kevin Smith being the one that helped you and says you're a huge Kevin Smith fan? And I will always. Well, you should wait. I, by the way, you know you don't have to share what you did, but could you could you share before we wrap this up? I would really like to end this on a positive note because these podcasts are always so down and I feel bad for our audience sometimes like who's going to want to listen to this um would you mind sharing this you recently got to meet Kevin um would you mind sharing a little bit of that for me because I know it was a really important experience for you I'd I'd like the world to know about that since he is our co-founder and vice president it was a really important moment for me not because of um who Kevin Smith is as a filmmaker because Ultimately, I love his films, but that's not why I love Kevin Smith, the man. Yeah, me too. Um, I like his work, but he's he's a really, honestly, very cool guy. Knowing what Kevin did to help you found the Wayne Foundation, it was important to me to be able to, of course, take the time to say thank you to Kevin for his films, because his films have gotten me through some really dark periods. Yes, Kevin does raunchy, foul-mouthed films, but if you look at the... Um, intent behind those films, you will see such a, a heart of love. And I was going to say they're so full of heart. That's just the thing that that's why uh, that that's why I've always loved Kevin Smith films is that they're they're not just they're not dirty for the sake of being dirty. It's just that's they're funny. But there's uh, when it boils down to it, and you really examine the film, there's always this this very genuine side to his writing that I don't think he gets enough respect for, but that's a personal opinion. I'm probably super biased, but it's in, in my defense, I was, a, I was a fan for a little over a decade before even knowing Mr. Smith, and I thought the same thing then, so, uh, but yeah, biased now. And I, I probably carry somewhat of the same bias as you, but the night that I met Kevin, as I told Kevin, it was one of the greatest nights of my life that I would put right up there with the day I married Sarah. Aww. And the reason for that is... It's number two to Sarah, right? Um, it's a very close second to yeah, Sarah. Yeah, okay. As long as it's number two. Um, <laughs> the, the reason for that is the work that he did to help you launch the Wayne Foundation, it, it, I can't put into words how much that meant to me. Because... And I told him the same thing. By helping you launch the Wayne Foundation, he helped you help me. And now you're uh, going to help others, just like exactly. I help others. And around the time that that had that Kevin and I had first met, which was um, at the Kansas City location for the home of Hollywood Babylon. <laughs> I have still yet to see Hollywood Babylon live in person. I, I that's like a life. It's a life goal for me. But I want to. I put meeting Kevin at the top of my bucket list. Oh, you that got was, it! You got it! That was that was my number one thing on my bucket list. Meet Kevin Smith and say thank you. Oh, you got it! And I'm. And, I, but I, I and I didn't tell you to promote that because I thought that you were going to talk about uh, his work with us. I just wanted to share what 
uh, as you had expressed with me, just how much it had meant to you um, and it, what, I, I, what it was like. It, uh, it, brought, it literally brought tears to my eyes to meet him because it's, it's not every day that I can meet somebody that I look up to and admire for such a specific reason and say thank you yeah because this reason has really affected you like you said it's not just that he's filmmaker kevin smith it's the fact that he's filmmaker kevin smith that decided to found the wayne foundation and that that in directly affects you as a person he he's i i look at it this way and we got to bring in comic books to this as we wrap this up okay um he's batman he is batman you're alfred <laughs> yeah, I am. And I'm just some ancillary secondary character right now that's going to as time goes on turn into somebody like a You're like very young Robin. Exactly. You're not ready yet. You're not there yet, but you're going to be. Exactly. And um I'll be damned if I let anybody get in the way of my mission which is the same as yours to in our lifetime see the destruction of sex trafficking inside the U.S. Yeah, because, I mean, of all the places in the world, this shouldn't be happening here. We, exactly. you know, we constantly make fun of, uh, of the tagline first world problems. I know I do because I catch people doing it all the time. I've even caught myself complaining about things that, you know, maybe I should reconsider if I should be complaining about this or not because, hey, reality check. Reality check. There are people being hurt all around the world. There, there, you know, uh, there are things happen. There's atrocities happening all around the world that we in the United States do not have to deal with. But that being said, trafficking is an epidemic in the United States. It's an absolute epidemic. And unless we go out and say something, it's never going to stop. It didn't, it happened to me 18 years ago, and it has only gotten worse since that time. And when it happened to me, as most uh, of our audience members is probably aware, human trafficking, there was no uh, human trafficking laws on the books even federally when it happened to me. Not for immigrants, not for U.S. citizens. There was no human trafficking laws, period, when I was trafficked. So although the landscape has changed, unfortunately, it is in response to the fact that the crime itself has increased massively. And a lot of that is due to things like the Internet and social media. And the sad thing is many people still have the misconception that it happens just overseas. It doesn't happen here. But because of people like you. Yeah, we're going to make sure to break that down. It's going to, that wall's going to be broken through and people are going to realize it. And when the good people of this country realize fully what's going on and get a grasp on it, there's going to be nothing to stop us from destroying sex trafficking inside the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, getting prosecutions is a hard thing. That's a big, that, that's a, that's a big bump in the road that eventually we're going to have to get around because the reality is, is that as we were talking about before the three black market items, you know, people, uh, arms and drugs, a drug or a gun, you can, a, a, a law enforcement officer can lock in evidence and hold for a year and a half until the prosecution is ready for it to be presented in trial. Um, a person, though, on the other hand, you can't just lock them away in an evidence locker. So we have to make sure that all their needs are being met from all the different entities that they're uh, involved with because they themselves, the trafficking victim, 
is the evidence. And that's what a lot of people don't understand. And that's one of the reasons why we have a low conviction rate, because even though we might find the victim, the victims themselves uh, could be terrified of their traffickers. On the uh, polar opposite end, we have Romeo pimps where they might be in love with their trafficker. We see that a lot with girls. I'm not quite sure about how that works on the boys end, but I know with young girls that that's a huge problem. Uh, you know, you know, I, if, if I'm working with somebody, uh, I, I never try to pit myself against their trafficker because, as you pointed out in your case, your trafficker was your parent. You know, if they have an emotional attachment to their parent, I can't be sitting there saying, oh, well, you're, you know, your trafficker's crap. Your trafficker's, you know, a, a piece of crap. What a horrible person. Because they, they, they have a relationship with that person. Same thing with Romeo pimps. It, it's not uh, trauma-informed, nor is it wise to pit yourself against the trafficker when you're helping these kids. It's more along the lines of just trying to explain why this is victimization, why it's not okay. Because and, they, might, they, they might not have any frame of reference that that's true. You're, you're right. And one thing that I always tell people when I'm talking about what I went through is the biggest thing that helped me, yes, I have faith and that gets me through day to day, but the biggest thing that helped me overcome the initial um, desire basically to kill myself because I felt worthless was I learned how to forgive my trafficker. Absolutely. That was because, one of the things I had to do too. And I think that's a huge step for all survivors staff eventually have to make because then they occupy they still occupy a space in your brain and that's not affecting them, you know, but it affects you negatively. So you have to, at, at when you're now, I mean, and it's a process you have to get, you know, you, I, I don't tell, I don't, I don't tell anybody that they should just suddenly forgive their trafficker from the outset, but eventually, you know, over time, it's the healthiest thing to do is not forgive them necessarily because nobody should be given forgiveness that doesn't ask for forgiveness. Um, but at least understanding that this person no longer has an effect on my life. And, uh, so I don't need to concern myself with them anymore. Well, see, the way I look at it is there's two different forms of forgiveness. There's the deep personal forgiveness that comes when they ask for it. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the forgiveness that you give, not because they ask for it, but because you need to forgive them for yourself. Right. Exactly. And it goes back to what you said about them having space in your head. That's not okay for you. That doesn't promote your healing. That doesn't promote your well-being. So if you can learn to, at least in the most general sense, forgive them, um, then you can start healing yourself. Yeah, at least, you know, even if you can't forgive them, at least move on. Move on from that person. And not, um, like you said, not allow them to have any kind of uh, uh, domain over your thinking or over your life even once uh, the victimization has stopped. Because hating them doesn't do anything. It doesn't affect them whatsoever. It does affect you, though. It affects, it affects victims every single day. And that kind of hate can eventually manifest itself into physical infirmities for you. Yeah, it can. It, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of, a lot of toxic things can happen from hating somebody. Even if you have every right to hate someone for what they've done to you and that they've victimized you, um, continuing with those feelings for long periods of time is not healthy. 
And uh, I mean, just because you have a right to those feelings doesn't mean that it's a healthy thing to hold on to them. Thankfully, the damage that I did to myself physically, because honestly, it took me until I was 30 to be able to forgive my trafficker, my birth father. Um, And that goes back to the last instance before I was taken away for entirely separate reasons than the trafficking. Um, The last time it happened was I was just shy of my eighth birthday. Right. So if it, imagine the kind of damage I did to myself over a 22 year period of holding on to that hate, holding on to that um, bile, emotional bile that just built up and turned into physical damage to my body. Well, that's why I think it's so amazing what you're doing here, uh, what your goals are. And just as Kevin says, uh, why not? That's what he said to me. So I'm going to say it to you. I'm going to pass on the same uh, piece of advice, I guess you would say, uh, is uh, why not? Follow your dream. Follow exactly. your, just do it. Just go out there and do it. Um, whatever it takes, you know, like coming on and doing my podcast, going and doing an interview so you can get your message out there so that more people understand that the reality is, despite what the statistics that we, that I cited earlier in the podcast, despite that they say 5% are male, that's of known trafficking cases. We're talking about cases that aren't known about. And the, the, and to put out the percentage of 5%, it, it, it distorts the public view of what the crime is and who's being affected. Exactly. It does. And it goes, and it piles onto that macho image that society still says men should have today. And I don't even understand what that has to do with child trafficking. I mean, if it, I mean, I do as an adult, like you, you as an adult exposing yourself as being victimized. But honestly, I think that, that that's just, it's, it's dumb reasoning by society's uh, uh, standard to feel that way about a child who's been victimized. A child doesn't have child. Children do not have options in these cases, especially when you're talking about. Uh, very young trafficking, which as far as I can tell with boys, the boys are being affected at much younger ages than the girls are. I mean, the girls are, the average age for a girl in Florida at least is between the age of 12 and 14 that they'll enter trafficking. With boys, my understanding is that it's several years younger. So that that's that's outright disturbing. That's it, that, it, 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 It's awful. It, it truly is disturbing and it truly is awful. But on the same token... Jamie, um, the ages of girls, at least from what I'm learning as a whole, and I'm looking at uh, worldwide numbers as well as U.S. numbers, can go as low as boys. Oh, they do. I'm just talking about for the – I'm speaking from the uh, perspective of specifically within a a certain area of the United States. And what I I want people to know more than anything else is – the same thing you want people to know. It's not about us. No, it's, not it's about really James not. Walton. It's not about John Price. It's about the ones who don't have a voice. Right. And, and I'm very much not a public speaker. In fact... I think you've done an excellent job so far, just to, 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 to give you props. Well, <laughs> I know you were nervous, but you, I, you've done fine as far as I can tell. Thank you, but I also look at 
what we're doing here is you and I having a conversation that other people are going to be lucky enough to listen in on. Yeah, absolutely, because these are the conversations that you and I have on a regular basis. It's just we're putting it on a podcast now so other people can basically overhear it. Exactly, but for me, I may never be one to go out and speak to large numbers of people um, because that frightens the heck out of me, but that's not going to stop me from speaking out when the opportunity arises like you and I are doing here because... I love what I do now, and it's not because I think it's a great thing, but because I love the idea that there's going to be somebody out there that hears what I have to say, and it helps them come to terms with what they've been through and start seeking out the assistance that they need to heal. Because it's about them. It's about helping them. It's about letting them know it's, it's okay. It's okay to speak out. In fact, it's... And it's not, and it's not your fault. It's that that's the first thing I'd say to any victim I come across. It's the first words out of my mouth as soon as I see them, and I'll probably obsessively repeat that statement to them over and over again as time goes on. Is it's not your fault. This it's isn't not. your fault. This happened, and you shouldn't be ashamed of it in any way. Whether you're speaking to an individual, or you're if you get the courage enough to speak out publicly, like John and I do. Um, either way, it's not your fault, so you shouldn't hold on to that because a lot of a lot of these victims do think it's their fault. They get it into their head that they, somehow they were complicit. I know that I did. I, I know I did for a time. Yeah. I think it was my fault. But I, I want to point out a distinction here for listeners. A lot of times, just like with women, male victims do go on to enter into relationships before they get the help that they need where they end up getting re-victimized. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, that's happened to me to the point where I actually had a female that I was in a relationship with, um, rape me. Oh my goodness. And that's something that that's something that a lot of people don't really acknowledge happens. Some people outright argue that male rape can't happen. I'm not one of those people, but Exactly, but I point that out to say I'm not going that route with my advocacy. I'm going the important for me route, which is the reason why I ended up in a relationship where I could be victimized again. And that's because I never got the help that I needed to deal with the pain and the agony and the suffering that I had from Yeah, it's cyclical. It's cyclical, and we see that uh, almost in every single case that does go without treatment is that whether they continue um, in the sex industry um, in some form, whether it's like dancing or pornography or continuing um, with sex uh, with um, like escorting, um, whether it's being in abusive relationships, um, we see this uh, continued pattern uh, of of, um, behavior that can lead to things that are harmful um if you if somebody is a victim of this they need the the sooner that they get the help that they need the better the 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 shorter the duration uh of their assistance that they're going to need is going to be from from at least from a psychological standpoint and that's with any kind of traumatization any time any person suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder um 
anyone, could, any psychologist could tell you, no matter what type of PTSD it is, whether it's from trafficking and child abuse or from um, military service, the sooner you can get in there to help that person, the better. So you and I are the ones that, you know, it took a while for us to get help because no, we, we didn't know we needed help. A lot of, most of society didn't recognize we needed help. So now you and I are trying to make sure that that doesn't happen for future generations. Um, up until when we finally reach our ultimate goal, which is the destruction of the industry in the U.S. That's right. That's right. Um, You're absolutely right. The destruction, no more human trafficking in the U.S., labor trafficking, sex trafficking, kids, adults, it doesn't matter. It should not be happening in what is supposed to be the best country in the world, supposedly. That's what we've been told our whole lives. So let's stand up to that. Let's, and, let's own it. Let's own it. And I believe we are the best country in the world, but I also recognize that we have our fallacies. And to me, the disease of human trafficking is our biggest fa- is the biggest fallacy that we have because not to say that that's a lie, but to not recognize it is the lie in and of itself. Yeah, we can't bury our heads in the sand and say it's not a problem. Exactly. We got, we got to stop doing that. We have to just take on the problem full force and, and address the issue. Otherwise, it's only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. But I can say one of the best things that has happened to me speaking out and me finding my voice is one of my personal heroes is one of, is now one of my best and dearest friends. Thank, thank you, Jamie, for that. Well, thank you so much, John. Well, that's a good place to end, although I, I, I'm sitting here blushing. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Do you want to go ahead and repeat your uh, Twitter information for people in case they do want to talk to you? Yes, absolutely. The best way to reach out to me, and folks, if I don't catch your messages right away, please know I'll sometimes take as much as two, maybe three hours a day to go back through my mentions on Twitter. And if there's anything that requires my direct interaction, I make a point of interacting with it. My Twitter handle is at jprice02, and I'm available to you guys. And when Jamie and I are done here, she's going to have my number so that if any of you decide to re- you're not comfortable coming to me directly and you reach out to her, she can give you my number to have you call me. Because for, for any of you who are listening that need the help, even if it's just as simple as me guiding you through step one, which is admitting it to somebody. I'm available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days out of the year. And that, that may sound like a gimmick speech. As it's not though, because that's the nature of our work. Exactly. It really is. I, I, of- most people can tell you that I don't sleep at night because that's the nature of our work. And more importantly, Jamie, it's the nature of our heart. True. True that. True that. Uh, we don't work banker hours, that's for sure. It, we, we do this because we care. We do this because we know. We do this because we Yeah, we, we do it because stand. we know. That's really what it boils down to is it boils down to it's not just that we have empathy for these people because, oh, that's sad. It's because we've literally walked in their shoes and we understand just how difficult um, even a short duration of exploitation or trafficking can cause to a child lifelong effects. But, you know, then you start factoring in things like um, sexually transmitted diseases uh, for, for females, pregnancies, um, things of that nature. There's so many things 
that can affect a trafficking victim's life, that it's, it's, it's absolutely important for all, everyone to understand that this is a very long journey. And if you and I can help those people, if we can hold their hand during that journey, that's going to be a huge, a much higher percentage of them being successful in their endeavors and not becoming, as you said, suicidal. Uh, suicide rates amongst trafficking victims is extremely high. Uh, drug use amongst trafficking victims, because a lot of traffickers use drugs to control their victims, um, is very, very high. So there's a lot going against victims, even once they get people. A lot of people have this misconception, oh, they get away from their trafficker and everything's just hunky-dory. No, that's when the, that's when the next hell starts of trying to put the pieces back together and understand and conceptualize of what happened because like someone like you, it happened when you were a child, a very small child, uh, by your own biological father. For me, it happened from a stranger who promised me the world at 14 years old, you know? So you got to piece those piece of everything back together, get a better understanding of what truly happened, who, who was right, who was wrong. As I said, not your fault, not your fault, not your fault. All right, John, thank you so much. This has been a great podcast and I can't wait to talk to you soon. Definitely. It'll be my honor, Jamie. Okay. Anytime. Bye-bye. This has been a production of Smodco Internet Radio. Sir, only at Smodcast.com. Do you ever wanted to be the Batman, dreamed of being the Dark Knight himself? Well, guess what? You can. Because you know what Batman does? He protects the innocent. And who are the innocent fucking kids, man? That's why we set up the Wayne Foundation. That's right. Uh, Jamie Walton runs our uh, the Smodco official charity. The Wayne Foundation. Uh, it's uh, you can find us at Wayne W A Y N E F D N dot org. Uh, Wayne Foundation is committed to spreading awareness of commercial sexual exploitation of children, as well as domestic minor minor sexual trafficking occurring within the United States. Uh, if you've never heard the episode of Sminterview where I sat down and talked to Jamie Walton. Um, do yourself a favor, go listen to it, and then come back and throw some shekels, if you can, uh, at our charity movement here. So far, the Wayne Foundation do an excellent job. Help her out, man. Go to waynefoundation.org to learn more, or you can follow, uh, and that's uh, W-A-Y-N-E-F-D-N.org, or uh, you could follow them on Twitter at, at the Wayne FDN, or you could follow Wayne Foundation President Jamie Walton uh, at, at Jamie Walton and learn more. But uh, help out. Here's your chance to be the Batman. Give if you can. If you ain't got no money, don't worry about it. Maybe you can help in some other way or whatnot, or maybe help when you can, when you have the chance, when you have some loot. But if you got some hand, handy loot, man, and you want to just punch fucking evil in its turkey neck, man, these fuckers that take kids and put them on a fucking stroll, make them force them into fucking prostitution and shit like that. Horrible shit that, you know, we wish there was a Batman around for to do something about. Help us out. Uh, help out, Jamie. Help out all uh, those people forced into sexual trafficking. Go to the WayneFoundation.org and be a Batman.